Blog Talk Radio. again as we have in the past eight and a half years. We're coming to you live from the EAL Radio Show Studio in St. Augustine, Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks for listening to Eastern Airlines Talk Radio. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show, and we have a great show for you tonight. And to all the listeners around the world, we say welcome. And join us as we celebrate the life of Eastern Airlines every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Hello, Eastern family and friends. As our producer said, it's great having you with us. My name is Chuck Albright, coming to you live from the beautiful villages in Central Florida. The weather tonight is a balmy 94 degrees. Feels like 103, though. But we're going to have it cool off because we're getting some thunderstorms later on. Welcome, and thank you for listening and calling the show. You've truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say we become the Eastern Airlines international radio show with over 50 countries listening in. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with the radio listeners from around the world during the broadcast. If you haven't called the show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611 and just say hello to talk to us on the air. You're going to be live every Monday evening. We can identify many countries around the world who listen in with our blog talk radio application. Isn't it great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out not only to the Eastern family but to the listeners from many different countries around the world. That's what we try to do every week on the EAL radio show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to these broadcasts? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on your homepage at www.ealradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash. Remember to abbreviate the word CAPTAIN to C-A-P-T. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611, at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Let me repeat the number so you can write it down for your Monday night visit, 213-816-1611. By the way, you want to tell all your friends about us. 
don't forget, you can listen to any of our 420 Monday night broadcasts and 75 Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's Captain C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. And scrolling down through the archives of the broadcast. Each episode is briefly described. And we're over 500 episodes now from the Eastern Files and the old Eastern Time radio series. Holy moly, Billy Batson. Our lines are always open for call. And if you choose not to participate and talk live with our host, we ask you to please mute your phone as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noises. Ah, I see we're number one on takeoff. So, Captain, let's get our flight 420 in the air. Tower Blur, 
While the Department of Commerce worked to improve aviation safety, a number of high-profile accidents called it, caused the department's oversight responsibility into question. A 1931 crash that killed all on board, including University of Notre Dame football coach Coot Rockney, this elicited public calls for greater federal oversight of aviation safety. Four years later, a DC-2 crash kills U.S. Senator Bronson Cutting of New Mexico. Mike? To ensure a federal focus on aviation safety, President Franklin Roosevelt signed the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938. The legislation established an independent Civil Aeronautics Authority, CAA, with a three-member Air Safety Board that would conduct accident investigations and recommend ways of preventing accidents. The legislation also expanded the government's role in civil aviation, giving CAA power to regulate airline fares and determine the routes of individual carriers served. In 1940, President Roosevelt split the CAA into two agencies. The Civil Aeronautics Administration went back to the Department of Commerce and the Civil Aeronautics Board, CAB, and the offshoot of the original CAA retained the responsibility for the ATC, uh, the Airmen and Aircraft Certification, Safety and Enforcement, and Airway Development. The CAB responsibilities included safety rulemaking, accident investigation, and economic regulation of the airlines. On the eve of America's entry into World War II, the defense purpose, for defense purposes, prop, uh, purposes, the CAA extended its ATC system to include operation of airport towers. In the post-war era, the ATC became a permanent federal responsibility at most airports. The post-war era was witnessed the witnessed the advert advert of uh, commercial jets. The British Airways Overseas Corporation, BOAC, introduced the first commercial jet service in 1952. A 36-seat Comet, which flew at 480 miles per hour, the top cruising speed of a DC-3 piston aircraft in comparison was about 180 miles per hour. By the mid-1950s, the U.S. companies began designing and building their own jet airliners. On June 30, 1956, a Transworld Airlines Super Constellation and the United Airlines DC-7 collided over the Grand Canyon, Arizona, killing all 128 occupants of the two airplanes. The collision occurred while aircraft was flying under visual flight rules in uncongested airspace. The accident dramatized the fact that even though the U.S. air traffic had gone more had grown more than doubled since the end of World War II, little had been done to mitigate the risk of mid-air collisions. On May 31, 1958, Senator A.S. Mike Maroney, a Democrat from Oklahoma, introduced a bill to create an independent federal aviation agency to provide for the safety and effective use of national airspace. Two months later, on August 23, 1958, the president signed the Federal Aviation Act, which transferred the Civil Aeronautics Authority function to a new independent federal aviation agency responsible for civilian aviation safety. 
although the Federal Aviation Agency technically came into existence with the passage of the Act, it actually assumed its functions and stages. Under the provision of the Act, the Federal Aviation Agency would begin operation 60 days after the appointment of the first Aviation Agency Administrator on November 1, 1958, retired Air Force General Pete Quisadere became the first Federal Aviation Agency Administrator. Sixty days later, on December 31st, the Federal Aviation Agency began operation. Neil? Well, I'm going to break, it, break in here and uh, say that his name is Casada, Elwood Pete Casada. That's a hard last name to pronounce, but uh, he was the first administrator. And how well I know that name, because it's on a few of my certificates that I received my first certificate uh, under Casada's signature, the CAA, Civil Aeronautics Authority, was issued in 1954. And uh, from there, which was a mechanics certificate, from there I got a hot air balloon with his name signed, ground instructor, link trainer operator certificate, flight instructor, and, of course, it just mentioned the mechanics certificate, AMP. And all of these were issued under Elwood Pete Casada. But another uh, reason to remember Casada, especially for the pilots, was the fact that uh, he put into a, into a, a law that you couldn't fly after you were 55. And back then, in those days, we were flying to 55, and you had to retire. So uh, uh, they, they fought it for a long, long time. I don't know what the age now is. Do, do any of you guys know uh, Mike? Or 65. 65 now, huh? 65. Well, Ten yeah. more years I could have flown In the back. States at 65. <laughs> Well, actually, yeah. Neil, it, I may be wrong, but I think he put it at age 60, not 55. And all well, it was 55. 30 or 40. Yeah. It was 55? Well, later yeah. on it became It was 55, 60. and then it came to 60, yeah. Yeah, I remember that well. And then, you know, that was when Dick Merrill was flying. And, right. of course, uh-huh. the, the law was passed, and he had already reached that age, was over 60 years old. And of course, he had to he had to retire because that was the law. But, so you're uh, so you're saying Quesada made it 55, and then later on it was changed know, to 60. No, I think it was 55 first, and then it became 60. And yeah, uh, 55 I, first, yeah. and then it became 60. Yeah, I mis- misstated that. But oh. uh, at any rate, uh, that name is on a few of my certificates, which I still have. And I haven't surrendered any of those, even my hot air balloon certificate, which I've never even been in one, but I have a certificate. <laughs> How did you work that? Well, back in those days, if you had a commercial uh, uh, rating, a commercial uh, certificate, you could go to the FAA with a Class two physical. Somebody told me about it, and I tried it out. And sure enough, in the uh, uh, FAA office in Miami, I uh, showed him my my commercial license and my physical uh, the uh, part of the uh, two uh, air, what do you call it second class and they sure enough they issued me a hot air balloon pilot certificate. I guess wow. they figured if you ever had the most hot that, air, right? Yeah, hot air only. That's what it states. Hot air only. <laughs> <laughs> Is that indicative of, of your abilities. 
<laughs> they didn't care. <laughs> Could you take a question, pilot guys? Can't yeah. you stay on as a flight engineer until you're 72? You know, that's a good question, Chuck. I don't know what the maximum age. Mike, you might know. Uh, the only one, I'm not sure of the age, but at Eastern Airlines, the only guy that uh, went from flying a, as captain on a 1011 was Gene Garges. You might remember he was number one on the seniority list. He flew engineer right until the, the end, of, uh, till it's, till the strike. But he had to take Eastern Airlines to uh, to court to... Uh, to get that position, and I don't know what the yeah. particulars of that was, but he was—he went from the left to seat to the engineer seat until until they went out. Yeah. That is a true statement, and I flew with him on the Electra when I was uh, new up in New York. I was the engineer on the Electra, and, and he did. He was the first guy to go from the captain seat on the 1011 to the engineer seat, and at a Reaper convention shortly thereafter, I was standing behind him in one of the lines, and I tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, do you remember me? And, of course, he's real nice. And he said, oh, yeah, I remember you. Now, tell me what your name is. <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> uh, I congratulated him on being the first captain to go back to, what do they call them, ropes, retiring old pilot engineers or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did they, fly for they, a long time. They used to call them herpes because you couldn't get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, he, was the, he was the first guy to do it, no doubt about it. Back to the story. Chuck, how about it? Okay. With no dedicated office space for the Federal Aviation Agency, employees of the growing agency were housed in several widely dispersed buildings around Washington, D.C., including some temporary buildings as far back as World War II vintage. The Federal Aviation Agency worked to obtain a headquarters building to consolidate the employees in one location. And on November the 22nd, 1953, the Federal Aviation Agency Washington Headquarters staff began moving into the newly completed Federal Office Building 10A at 800 Independence Avenue Southwest. Excitement about the new building quickly evaporated on the move day as employees heard the news that President Kennedy had been assassinated in Texas. I think right about now we need to take a break on our FAA history and introduce a theme song that the FAA has adopted. Thank you. 
Well, there is only one government agency with its own special theme, Um, the Federal Aviation Administration, better known as the FAA, regulates all aspects of civil aviation, airports, air traffic controllers, even commercial space vehicles. But where it differs from the other departments of government, it is the only government agency to have its own theme song. We're 40-some thousand strong, working together as we sing this song. We're the people who can do the job when it's on the line. We always know just what it takes every hour of every day to keep you flying safe across this land and around the world. So goes the first verse of the FAA theme song, also known by the alternative title, The People of the FAA. In the only existing video of this song, the group, which became known as the FAA Chorale, can be seen shimmying and singing while wearing matching flight attendant uniforms of blue suits, white tops, and red scarves. For a few brief minutes, they provide an alternative reality to government drabness, performing at bond drives year after year, not just at the FAA, but across other agencies too. It was designed to bring the FAA employees closer together in the common purpose we had in our mission of aviation safety. That's a quote by John Hanks, the creator of this song. This may seem a tall order, but it was not one that Hanks shied away from, confronting the agency's mission head-on with verses such as, We're planning and building a way to make tomorrow even safer than today. While flying grows, so do we, and that's what it's all about. We want to help you get back home in a jumbo jet or flying alone. We make it safe up in the sky so you'll relax when you fly. The song was a huge success. The employees loved it, recalled Hanks, and even the FAA's administrator, a distant figure in the agency, wrote to Hanks to thank him. The FAA Corral went on to perform at numerous events across the country, including at one of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No anti-drug rallies, following the headliner, LaToya Jackson, on stage. By the 1980s, though, corporate anthems had become more closely associated with Japanese firms, where they were sung to reinforce company spirit and improve overall morale, often being performed alongside morning exercises. The FAA is unique in being the only government agency to blow its own horn, literally. While the song's appearance on YouTube has seen generous commenters associating it with a misuse of governmental funds, these criticisms are misplaced. The song costs nothing to the taxpayer except the time, effort, and enthusiasm of Hanks and his musicians. You may think the tune is cheesy the singer's a tad off-key, but perhaps if the DHS, EPA, or even the FBI had anthems of their own that showed the rest of the country they were normal people doing normal things, the popular antipathy towards government might be ever so slightly lessened. 
Thanks to John Hanks and the Corral, the FAA became, for a short while, just a bit more human. Dorothy? Colleen, I had no clue this song existed, but apparently the (laughs) FAA is the only government agency to have its own theme song. I can't get it out of my head. It's sort of amazing. I mean, what's not to love about the lyrics? We want to help you get back home in a jumbo jet or flying alone. We make it safe up in the sky so you can relax when you fly. And now you know there is a human side to these folks that monitor everything we in aviation do. Let's get back to our history lesson. President Johnson, concerned about the lack of a coordinated transportation system, believed a single department was needed to develop and carry out comprehensive transportation policies and programs all across transportation modes. In 1966, Congress authorized the creation of a cabinet department that would combine major federal transportation responsibilities. This new Department of Transportation, which they call the DOT, began full operations on April 1st. 1967. On that day, the Federal Aviation Agency became one of the several model organizations within DOT and received a new name, the Federal Aviation Administration, or as we all call it, the FAA. At the same time, CAB's accident investigation function was transferred to the new National Transportation Safety Board. Who would have thought of organizing a Department of Federal Government? Host, how about telling us how this came about? Jim Holder? Yeah, Dorothy. In January 1968, the New York Controller formed an employee organization, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or known as PATCO. Within six months, PATCO had a national membership of over 5,000 controllers. To highlight difficult working conditions and growing national airspace system, the NAS, they called it, congestion there, and in July 1968, the PATCO chairman announced Operation Air Safety, which he described as a campaign to maintain FAA-prescribed separation standards between aircraft, a period of discord between management and the PATCO Culminated in 1970, they had a sick out by 3,000 controllers. Although controllers subsequently gained additional wage and retirement benefits, tensions between the union, PATCO, and management did not ease. In February 1972, the National Association of Air Traffic Specialists, NAATS, became the exclusive representative for all flight service stations, those controllers who supported general aviation pilots, FAA and the NAPS concluded a agency-wide collective bargaining agreement on June 1st, 1972. This was the first such contract between the FAA and a national labor organization. Don, tell us more about it. Okay, Jim. Well, <clears throat> the Airline Deregulation Act signed on October 24, 1978, created a highly competitive airline industry. Deregulation increased FAA workload. 
the FAA had to certify every new airline, and there were hundreds of applications after deregulation that the FAA had to review, approve, or disapprove. In the immediate years after the Deregulation Act, FAA flight standards and other offices focused primarily on the new applicants. By the time the airline deregulation uh, became law, the FAA had achieved its semi-automated air traffic control based on a marriage of radar and computer technology. Despite its effectiveness, however, the air traffic control system required enhancement to keep place with the increased volume of traffic that resulted from the new deregulated environment. Excuse me. And about this time, the labor uh, contract between the FAA and PATCO expired in March 1981. Formal contract negotiations began in February, but those ended after 37 negotiation sessions. Informal talks, however, continued to June 17th when PATCO rejected a Reagan administration contract proposal. After the failure at the last minute of negotiations on August 3rd, approximately 12,300 members of the 15,000-member PATCO went on strike, grounding about 35% of our nation's 14,200 daily commercial flights. Approximately four, four hours after the strike began, President Reagan issued the strikers a firm ultimatum. Return to work within 48 hours or face permanent dismissal. After exp expiration of the grace period, FAA fired approximately 11,400 controllers. Well, hmm. Most of those fired appealed in action, and the FAA eventually reinstated 440 as a result of their appeals. The strike and dismissals does that the strike and dismissals curtail FAA controllers' workforce. To keep the airways open, approximately 3,000 air traffic control supervisory personnel worked at controlling traffic. FAA assigned assistance to support the controllers and accelerated the hiring and training of new air traffic personnel. Military controllers arrived at FAA facilities soon after the strike began, and about 800 were ultimately assigned uh, to the agency. I, I don't know what you guys were, but, uh, you know, that th was a, a real bad time uh, for flying. Uh, I was inconvenienced a lot in my commutes uh, back and forth from the islands. How about Mike you guys? And Jim, yeah, Mike and Jim, you got a comment before I make mine? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Listen, uh, I got my logbook out. And on August the 1st, I had a check ride in a simulator in Miami with check Captain Olin Lease and in lieu of, but I'm going to go into bio with that, but that was a check ride. Uh, I sat back, watched everything, apparently, because my next entry is on August the 6th. I flew a 727 from Atlanta to Pensacola. So basically, I was not involved in this. It was pretty much uh, getting a little bit back to normal by the time I got back in the flight uh, status three days later. 
but I know it right. was a mess. Well, when that all happened, I was actually, uh, nothing happened initially. I was uh, doing some contract work flying out of Saudi Arabia at that time. And, uh, of course, it became very uh, good later on for for us that uh, could hardly understand a lot of these uh, foreign controllers that talk with, like they had a hot potato in their mouth. Some of these guys all ended up later on getting jobs over in the Middle East and Europe. And it was good because you could... Uh, you could kind of reminisce, talk to some guys you used to talk to at Kennedy and all that stuff, and you could actually understood what they said. So that's where I <laughs> actually was. Well, <laughs> on August the 4th, my logbook shows me leaving Atlanta at 7 o'clock in the morning, going to Greensboro, North Carolina, my first stop. And that was August 4th. Didn't think anything about it. Knew the strike, the controllers had gone out on strike, but everyone seemed to be talking to me on my airplane. I was flying caps on a 727. But when I landed in Greensboro, I had the local news media met our airplane and wanted an interview. And so when I walked off the airplane to go into operations, uh, the local uh, television stations wanted to know if I felt safe uh, without the controllers. I said, well, the controllers worked me in on this flight, so I have no no uh, no comments to make about, uh, you know, w- what what was happening. And uh, that was, it was a short discussion, and, uh, and I left to fill out the papers and get on my way, but it was a normal day. Uh, lots of talk during that time, of course, and uh, flew trips. I don't think I ever lost a trip as result of the uh, folks being on strike. The the strike that I remember so well was going into Montreal, Canada, and the Canadian controllers went on strike, and uh, we were told the whole on a Sunday uh, morning from New York to Montreal, uh, again, 727, 30-some thousand feet, in a holding pattern you could see all the way up to the uh, ice cap, uh, looking north, not a cloud in the sky, and we were holding. And I asked the first officer, they asked what the reason for the hole was. There was obviously no weather. And uh, we came back, they came back and said it was because of controllers, and Canadian controllers had gone out on strike because wow. they wanted to use French as the language uh, to communicate in, in Canada. And you you guys remember that, don't you? Well, I do, but I yeah. didn't. I'd forgotten about it till you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we were in a holding pattern. Supervisor came on. Sure, I don't even think we completed one complete holding, and uh, and cleared direct to Montreal. So, but uh, any other like comments? Like during the uh, the uh, the uh, when you flew over in Iran, Italy, Italian airspace. Those guys were always on strike, so uh, it was kind of <laughs> like a relief. <laughs> well, you couldn't understand what they were saying when they were working. It didn't well, matter. like like I said, most of them talked like they had a hot potato in their mouths anyway. All three of us would be looking at each other and say, what do you say? And I can say Mexico City was the same. <laughs> yeah, but at least they were trying down there. They tried. Yeah, they you got to hand it to them. They tried. Yeah, they did, yeah. yeah. In Mexico, all- I mean. <laughs> Didn't they execute uh, 
different slot times for different flights. Uh, I think I recall that where you you had a slot time to take off and land, so you didn't burn a lot of fuel. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of countries did have that. You're talking about gate hole, I think, maybe. Uh, they had gate holes. Yeah, held at the gate. That was in the 80s, yeah. They yeah. held at the gate before you even left. Yeah, that, uh, yep. I had a very memorable flight. I had gate hole in somewhere down in Florida going to Detroit and uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, I won't bore you with the details, but Santa Claus came to Detroit that night, but he was very late. <laughs> hey, Mike, how about continuing on? Okay, guys. Uh, in the aftermath of the strike, uh, Petco disbanded and the controls remained without a union until June 19, 1987, when the National Air Transport Tra- Tra- Traffic Controllers Association became exclusive, became the exclusive representative for of terminal and control centers. Uh, during this time, the FAA electronics technicians unionized. On December 29, 1981, the Professional Airways System Specialist, PASS, became exclusive, the exclusive representative of the technicians. The FAA and PASS concluded for the first national labor agreement during the fiscal year of 1984. In April of 2000, President Clinton signed into law the Wendell H. Ford Aviation Investment and Reform Act of the 21st century, which contained a provision mandating an an appointment of the chief operating officer. In In December, the executive order, the president directed FAA to create a performance-based organization that focused solely on the efficient operation of the AT system. So, as Jim corrected me on this thing, in June of 2003, the ATC Air Traffic Control Organization was established by the FAA with its chief operating officer, COO, Mr. Russell Chu. With that COO in place, the FAA went forward with a major reorganization of its air traffic research and acquisition organizations. On November 18, 2003, the Secretary of Transportation announced initially initial details of the new ATO business structure. The ATO consolidated FAA's air traffic services, research and acquisitions, and free flight program activities into a smaller, more efficient organization with strict focus on providing the best service for the best value to the aviation industry traveling for the traveling public. Jim? Yeah, Mike, uh... I'm just going to be reading this and revealing this, but I had no idea about any of this stuff, to be honest with you, because I retired in 1997, uh, seven years before this happened. The ATO officially began operations on February the 8th, 2004. It consisted of five major service units, the en route and oceanic, the terminal, flight services, system operations, and technical operations. Also included within the organization top level are five staff-level business groups, safety, communications, operations, planning, finance, and equipment and business services. In 2008, the ATO 
consolidated the service units and staff officers into four business units, each led by a senior vice president. I'm learning a lot of stuff here, let me tell you. In line with other agency efforts to improve efficiency, in December 2005, the COO restructured the ATO administrative and support functions in the field. In June 2006, he instituted a new ATO service center structure. Three service centers replaced the nine service area offices with en route, turnable, and technical operations. Each of the service centers was made up of five functional groups. I'm, not, I'm sorry. I am just shouldn't be laughing, I guess. I'm reading this. Administrative services, business services, safety assurance, system support, and planning and requirements. A sixth group, engineering services, was a shared resource and remained in place until the, in the existing location. Whew. With the ATO service in place, the agency's first COO resigned from the FAA on February 23, 2007. Administrator Marion Blakely assigned COO responsibilities to Deputy Administrator Robert Thugale as collateral, collateral duties until a new COO came on board. On October the 1st, 2007, Administrator Blakely hired the second COO and Mr. Hank Krasowski. And I got Jim Holder. I'm re- Jim I'm Holder. I think you have. Mm-hmm. I think you have just uh, read the definition of bureaucracy. <laughs> God, God, but I didn't know that. You know, the reason to I say the least. Is because I didn't read this part. Getting refreshed for this. I just read it for the first time, and I couldn't make it. <laughs> if ever there was an illustration, you just read it. Yes. You guys are forgetting. This is the government. Yeah. <laughs> We're here to help you. Well, now, Colleen is going to square this straightness away. Colleen, put some clarification to what we just said. I will try. <laughs> okay, Jim. The Vision 100 Century of Aviation Reauthorization Act, signed into law in December 2003, endorsed the concept of a next-generation air transportation system known as NextGen. The following month, the DOT secretary announced plans for a new multi-year, multi-agency effort to develop an air transportation system for the year 2025 and beyond. He subsequently established a joint planning and development office known as JPDO at the FAA comprised of representatives from FAA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, the Departments of Transportation, Defense, Homeland Security, and Commerce, and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. All of this to create and carry out an integrated plan for NextGen. On December 15, 2004, the DOT unveiled the Integrated Plan for the Next Generation Air Transportation System, which laid out goals, objectives, and requirements necessary to create the next-gen system. When constraints in en route airspace and the airspace surrounding U.S. airports began to result in flight delays and scheduled disruptions, the FAA began to look for immediate solutions while continuing next-gen activities. 
To improve capacity, FAA began implementing a number of new concepts. The required navigation performance, known as RNP concept, for example, would take advantage of new onboard technologies for precision guidance to help transition the NAS from reliance on airways running over ground-based navigation aids to a point-to-point navigation concept. The FAA also implemented the use of reduced vertical separation minima, RVSM, which reduced the minimum vertical separation between aircraft from 2,000 feet to 1,000 feet for all properly equipped aircraft flying between 29,000 feet and 41,000 feet. This increased the routes and altitudes available and allowed more efficient routing that would save time and fuel. Dorothy? Yes, Colleen. Between 2001 and 2007, aviation witnessed one of its safest periods for scheduled air carriers, not counting the terrorist activity of September 11, 2001, There were only three fatal accidents in 2001, none in 2002, two in 2003, one in 2004, three in 2005, two in 2006, and none in 2007. Fatal accidents became rare events with only 0.1% accidents per 100,000 flight hours or 0.018 accidents per 100,000 departures. President Bill Clinton appointed Jerome Randolph, or as we called him, Randy Babbitt, a former Eastern Airlines captain, to serve as the FAA administrator. Not sure how many of you knew that. Babbitt served from June 1, 2009 until December 6, 2011. With the work of the FAA over the past 50 years, aviation has become central to the way we live and do business, linking people from coast to coast and connecting America to the world. In fact, the FAA has created the safest, most reliable, most efficient, and most productive air transportation system in the world. To ensure aviation's future viability, FAA is now working with its federal and industry partners to develop a flexible aerospace system that fully responds to the changing needs of businesses and customers in the 21st century. The strength of the next-gen system depends on lower costs, improved service, greater capacity, and smarter security measures. That is why FAA has defined a vision of the future that integrates achievements in safety, security, efficiency, and environmental capability. Uh, You suppose Orville and Wilbur would have been thinking about sticking with the bicycle? (laughs) Had they known all all this? You mean the one with no chain? If they go into the free auto free person in the cockpit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, what was it? Delta the other day has initiated. uh, They're going to move the seat pitch. You guys know what the pitch is between one arm 
of one seat to one arm to the next seat. They're going to take two more inches out of that gap, so your knees two. are now up. Good, great. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jeez. Jeez. Uh-huh. Just how, what we how need. How going to be? I'm glad I'm short. <laughs> yeah, you're the only one that's going to fit there. I'm glad I'm not, I guess. <laughs> I just can't believe that. I rode a 757 quite a few times on Delta going out to Albuquerque when my son was out there, and I generally got stuck in the last row because I had to have a seat seat because of my knee and the side thing. So all these people were standing in line to go to the John had their behind it right in my face all the way to Albuquerque. <laughs> and I won't go any further into that. But I will tell you, there wasn't no two inches available. It was completely up against my knee and my right leg. Luckily, the one that doesn't have a knee in it was outside on the edge. And that and it couldn't come back two inches. Now, I don't want to... <laughs> Speak this, but they ain't two inches between the seat and my legs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, don't feel bad. The uh, the planes that we rigged out for the Asian flights, we only had 18-inch pitch. Uh, they could get almost well, 400. Well, they're little bitty people over there compared to us. Yeah, they could almost get 400 people on a 1011. Yeah, I know yeah. Did it? Did anybody, any of you guys, uh, fly or know Randy Babbitt uh, personally? Oh yeah, I know him well. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah I used I to talk be... to him every once in a while because he, his dad was uh, an Eastern yeah, captain, as you captain. well know. He was Slim, Slim Babbitt. And, well, I was uh, the. Uh... Go ahead. I'm sorry. He was uh, when my dad started with Eastern. He used to fly co-pilot on the DC three with uh, with Slim. And yeah. Slim, as you may know, he was missing his index finger below the knuckle on his right hand, and he used to get the uh, the flight attendants to <laughs> he would stick that finger on his nose, and it looked like he had his finger all the way up into it in his brain. <laughs> I didn't know Slim, but, but I, I knew Randy well because I was the chairman of uh, ALPA chairman here in Atlanta, and I was also chairman of the field board up in headquarters, uh, airline pilots headquarters in Herndon, Virginia. And and Randy was our, he was the Hank Duffy's administrative assistant. And when Hank Duffy left the office, Randy ended up going in as, F- as the head of the ALPA. So, yeah, yeah I knew Randy quite well, and, and I was uh, talked to him the day after his uh problem with the police and he told me at that time that he was going to be proven innocent but he had to resign uh, he had no choice and sure enough about three or four months later maybe longer than that uh, they dismissed the uh, DUI charges against him well, because was, of the police. He, he got he kind of got the short end of the stick on that thing I he, talked to him a few sure times did. about Absolutely. it and, and uh, it, it wasn't really anything that should have been should have happened so yeah, the policeman's uh, de- uh, cam, uh, de- uh, dashboard camera proved that uh, what he was saying was not true. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and Randy ended up going with Southwest Hello? for a while there. I think yeah. he left Southwest now. Hey, guys, I've got some callers on the line. If you'd like to speak up now, area code 864, I think that's South Carolina. Actually, uh, it is a South Carolina number, but I live in Georgia. 
Okay, who's on the air? Who's with <laughs> I've us? been on the show, but it's been quite a while. This is Mary Myers. I used to, I, I started with Eastern in Fort Lauderdale, 78, went to Atlanta, West Palm Beach, and back to back to Fort Lauderdale in about 13 oh, years. I also am retired from the FAA, so I thought oh. I wanted to just share a little bit, a little bit of more history. Um, I retired out of there not quite a year and a half ago, and um, prior to my retiring, about a year before that, um, they revamped the whole flight standards division of the FAA, and they did away with regions, and everything is just basically like kind of one geographical area. And a lot of the reason that they did that is because they were having so many issues with those certifications that were trying to come on the scene, and they could wait for a year or two before they could even get to a certification. And so it became very, very uh, complicated and, and troublesome for for companies that were trying to actually go into business. So rather than make it by geography and wherever you were located, they, they did away with that. So they went into some type of a, I don't know if it was just a database or one general area. And what that, what that did is that anybody could be assigned to those certifications so that they could get them worked much, much quicker since people that are going into aviation are going in for profit, not like the FAA who is funded by Washington. So um, I, I started with the FAA in 97. I had been with Eastern. I went with American. Then I worked for Flight Safety International. Uh, I was with the FAA for nine years. I left for nine years, and I went back again. Wow. And so there were some changes. I missed Randy Babbitt being there. I was very familiar with the name and the face, but I missed. He was already there and gone by the time that I got back. And I felt really bad about that because, unfortunately, I heard a couple names that were mentioned earlier, Marion Blakey and what have you, Jane Garvey before that. Um, you know, they didn't really know the industry. They didn't really know aviation. So it was always very troublesome to me to put people, not unlikely, not on, not on, you know, on team and in government, to have people that really didn't know the subject matter, didn't really know the situation, that tried to run an agency of the size of the FAA without the experience to really do it. Randy, no question about it. Uh, from everything that I heard when I got back is that he did a phenomenal job. And you're right. Yeah. From what I understand, yeah. he really did get the short end of the stick. And that's yeah. unfortunate. Now we've got somebody else up there again who, who knows nothing about aviation. And while I'm gone, as with all of you on the phone here, you know, you either love aviation or you got out very quickly. When you love it, you care about it until you're gone from here. You care about the industry. You care about safety. You care about things that are going on. And, and it's just troublesome to me because that continues to happen, that they put people in charge of it that just don't really understand it. And a lot of times I don't even know that they care to understand it or care to learn. It was very passionate for me. Um, Nick Sabatini, I don't know if that's the name you guys know. He was under the, the department, the secretary, um, the administrator, he was the second person in command of, of the FAA when he was there. He was considered to be AVR1. Um, I'm trying to think. I left there in 2005, so I think 2002 or 2003 he came out with a customer service initiative, which I was so excited about. And and so I even wrote – I went to my boss, who, who was an, an Eastern Airline employee also. His father was a pilot, Leonard Beers. Charlie Beers worked in our tech ops in Miami, and he became mm -hmm. my supervisor at the FAA. And he, mm -hmm. I went to him and I said, Charlie, I am so, so interested in this customer service initiative. So I wrote up a job description. I was involved in a, in a uh, team that um, 
we traveled around the United States. We came up, we were coming up with new regulations, rewriting regulations. And in the midst of doing that, when I met with the division manager in Atlanta, who at the time was Fred Walker, I went to him and made my proposal. And he's like, oh my gosh, Mary. He said, that, that's, that's incredible. He said, you know, but, and I told him, here's my idea of that. If you're going to have a customer service initiative where you're going to develop a relationship between the regulatory side and the industry, we need somebody that understands both sides. And I said, so he said, where do you see that happening? I said, every place that there's a major carrier where they have a corporate office, that's where you need to have at least one point of contact, at least to start. And I said, um, I'm, I'm willing to volunteer from where I am to do it. I said, I, I think it's fantastic, you know. So they said, well, you know, they just came out with an executive officer position. They said that kind of is up underneath them. But he said, I, I'm going to hold on to every bit of this, and we'll see how this works out. And, and we'll see where, what we need to do from there. Well, you know, it wasn't too long after that that I left. I mean, they, you know, you were kind of seeing a few things that weren't really happening the way that I thought they should happen. There was a lot of controversy always about that because a lot of people thought, well, you got this customer service initiative between the industry and the regulatory body. You know, is it more considered that they're in bed with each other? You know, it didn't have to be that way. It really wasn't meant to be that. We didn't have to be that way. You just needed to be interested and, and, and knowledgeable about both sides so that you could do the right thing for both sides, still maintaining the number one priority, the okay. best aviation safety that we can have. Mm-hmm. Mary, uh, question. You talk about certification. Do you have any idea now uh, how long it takes to certify a 121? And by the way, are you in 121 operations or 135? You know, I was, or what? most of my... Most of my time was 121. And well, when I first started with the agency, I was just kind of a, a resource for the office. I started in the Atlanta FISDO, went to the Orlando FISDO, which later became the South Florida CMO, that which was for all of 121. So really, most of my time was 121. When I left and came back, I was a resource for the, I worked under the division manager, and then I went to the national simulator team which from what I understand now would no longer exist in any regulation. They don't call it that. They come up under AFS 800 out of Washington, and they kind of do things differently. I haven't even gone a year and a half yet. Uh, so I don't know, but my guess would be probably um, – it depends. on what. Uh, from start to finish, I know when Ed Weagle was trying to get the New Eastern started – I knew a few people that were involved in that, and they kept saying, oh, you know, we're going to go, you know, it's, everything's going to be done in March, and it's going to be done in June. I said, it's not. It's definitely not. Mm-hmm. Just because I was involved in a few certifications, but that was a number of years ago, um, it takes quite a long time. And the more, if they find things along the way as you're trying to do your pre-cert, it just delays everything further and further and further right. until you can yeah. bring everything up to speed where you need to be. There's always yeah. people that don't realize it takes a lot longer than they think it does. Definitely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, back in the early 90s, I was uh, with a company in Pittsburgh, and we uh, finally got certification in two years. And uh, it took two years, but uh, we had a lot of problems. And But uh, at any rate, nice having you with us tonight, and uh, thanks for giving us a, an update about Thank what's you. going on. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I kept trying to figure out how to get in, and actually, be heard, I kept going, hello, hello, and so I hung up, went back to my email and called in, and I thought, I just want to share a little bit. It's been very interesting. I've loved it. 
And, and you know what? Since I started in 97 and really ended up in 2017, it, it's, it's so much of my history there that I loved it. It was kind of a reminder of a lot of things that were coming back. And you'd be talking, I'd be saying, oh, that's the act of 1958 when they created the FAA and just so many different <laughs> things. But I've enjoyed it, guys. You, guys. you guys all did a great job. You really did. And I'll try to tune in again soon. Thank we you. hope you is there to help you. Yeah. Thank you. We'd love to have you. Thank you very much. You guys have a wonderful evening. Yeah. Thanks, Mary. All I know, all I know uh-huh. is, a, as, as a part one, part ninety-one operator, we had, a, I had a PMI, a POI, and a PAI. There you go. We used to call them the Three Stooges. They were constantly <laughs> looking for us. Three P's. Oh, and I heard you guys say, I heard you say one thing. I heard somebody say, you know, the the, the name, you know, the the FAA is always like, um, you know, um, we're here to help you. Later on, the joke became that um, we're not happy until you're not happy. Yeah. <laughs> and I oh, knew a few my... people that had that attitude, which wasn't a good attitude. And it wasn't <laughs> the same attitude that everybody had. But I kind of chuckled because when I first came on board, that's what everybody said. Yeah, we're the government and we're here to help. Um, in, <laughs> in a lot of cases, we have a lot of great – we have a lot of ex-Eastern guys that ended up, you know, with yeah. the FAA. Randy Gibson, I don't know if anybody remembers Randy Gibson. He used to fly mm-hmm. DC-9s with his brother, David. And um, they, we used to call them the Gibson brothers. We'd fly into Fort Lauderdale and what have you. We have numerous, George Gunn, um, like I said, Charlie Beers, many guys from Eastern that came in. Um, and when I went back, you know, when I had gone in, I went in, I was like in my 40s, and I went back, and everybody was like, where are all the people that were here when I was here, you know? Because they were older than me, and so many of them have retired. It's a lot of, it's become a lot of Delta people now. Well, at least here in Atlanta, because I came back to Atlanta. And um, so I, I really kind of, it was kind of um, not quite as, as nice of a homecoming for me because so many of the people are retired. And unfortunately, we've lost several. I, some of you guys may have known Bob Bruce. Oh, oh yes. He passed You're away. Royal. Yeah, Royal. he passed away a number of years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And he was such a terrific guy. I mean, he was just a, he was just, he was a mess, he, but he was a fun mess. Um, and, and so that's kind of what I went back to. So it was a little bittersweet on my part. Um, I did miss a lot of the people that were gone. Um, and it's definitely a new world out there and it's changing. I, I, I think I'm going to reserve the, the right to kind of just do a wait and see how I think it's really all going to turn out. Um, and I hope and pray for the best for them because I, so, you know, it, most of the, I mean, they just have a heart for that. They care. It matters to them. Yeah. And then if you Very just keep good. the politics out of it, it would be okay. Very good. Thanks so much, Mary. And come back yeah. anytime. You're welcome. You guys love to have you. You bet. Ca- Captain right. Neil. Guys, take care now. Yes. Yeah, Captain. Uh, uh, I dealt with a lot of uh, a lot of these. Uh, of course, it was Gatos, as we remember years ago. General Aviation District officers that became yeah. Fizdos. Yeah. And uh, and if one office would okay something, the other one would not. So I, whenever I went in to visit these guys. Standing in the lobby, they had the big FAA sign. It said flight standards. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I wanted to know why, when they were going to take the standards part out of there, because whatever was approved in one FISDO, if you took your manual over to another one, they'd go, we don't like that. Yeah. So I said, there's nothing standard about what <laughs> Okay, anyway. well, Dorothy, uh, we've got uh, just a little small uh, tribute for S- July 4th coming up. So uh, would you uh, tell us what's happening here coming up and new members and so forth? 
Yes, well, I, I'd like to mention that we got a, a nice uh, uh, note from Sandy O'Neill, um, and she wrote, I was investigating a report in my local newspaper regarding an eastern flight crash near Vero Beach where I live, and I found your site. I viewed much of the site, and the videos brought a tear to my eyes. Okay, I confess I was blubbering. <laughs> Although I never worked for Eastern, my sister did in Miami. I worked for AT&T, and Eastern was their preferred carrier. Flights of all types fascinate me. I get choked up looking at the Atlantis at the Kennedy Space Center. Thank you for creating the site. I will tell my sister about it. Eastern is gone, but it's certainly not forgotten. So we just wanted to mention that. Uh, also that uh, some of the people that uh, have donated uh, $50 or more, John Chujaki, uh, he uh, met Neil at uh, Ruby's uh, restaurant. So he, uh, Neil had written to him and said, I hope that you'll call in to join in our radio group, and I hope that he does. The other gentleman that gave us $50 donation, um, Gary Cortland, uh, he's right in Neil's backyard in St. Augustine. So we sure enjoy having the money, of course, always. That helps us continue, but having someone that cares right in the backyard. Uh, remember now, donations of $40 or more will entitle you to receive a copy of Neil's book, Wings of Many. Uh, free along with a free model of the Eastern 737 with your donation. So we only have a limited supply of these Eastern 737 aircraft with a stand. Uh, this, as I mentioned previously, was donated to, to us by an anonymous investor of Eastern Airlines Group, and his contribution has given us this advantage to have people make donation and get one of their beautiful aircraft. In fact, he wrote and said that the detail on it was great. So we're so happy. He loved Neil's book, and we're just so happy to hear notes like that. And please, if you feel like sending any kind of a note to us, we're happy to hear from you. And that's host at EALradioshow.com. We also want to thank Reaper for their sponsorship and other members who contributed to keeping our program going and the legacy in the public eye. And two, remember that Reaper's first annual reunion is coming up September 4th to the 6th, and that's uh, at the Embassy Suites Hotel in Kennesaw, Georgia. Now they have reaperonline.com slash reunion where any other information and their form is there. So please go in there and look and see. Uh, Jim Holder, you still have those 2019 Repartee magazines? I surely do, and I've got a couple of 17 and 18s, and I've cleaned out my office here since I'm no longer the editor, and I will be glad to send people who wish to receive one of these magazines. I'll be glad to do it. Just let me know, roadhog37 at comcast.net. Okay. Also, folks, I wanted to let you know that I revamped the website today so that the members donation area is right on the front, and you can click in there to make a donation or to order a separate copy of Wings of Many if you don't donate. 
remember that whenever you do send any kind of a donation, make sure that you have your address on there so we can be sure to send out the package to you. Some post offices do not accept uh, packages, so please make sure that it's a place where we can send the package without any issue and you'll be sure to get it. Uh, so there's uh, the next upcoming programs uh, we have for July 8th, a global pilot shortage, and that's going to be very interesting. I'm sure you pilots out there will want to join us. And uh, the Eastern Radio Show is also putting on the last heartbeats of an American legacy airline, the final days of Eastern Airlines. And that's a program we're waiting to see what Neil puts into that program because I'm sure it has his heart and many of our hearts right there. And that's going to be on July 15th, uh, following by uh, some other programs that we have listed on our website. So please be sure to go there, talk to us this week. We have the uh, EAO uh, from the Eastern File on Thursday. And then followed, of course, with the program Monday and shortly after. Don't forget, we have Old Time Radio with Neil and Don as host. Back to you, Neil. Okay, we're going to do our tribute tonight for three days from now. And with this uh, short uh, tribute to the 4th of July, the founding of this country. July, and um, we're going to land the airplane now and call it an evening, but we have a surprise uh, closing music we will play tonight for the first time, 
And I hope you can give me some comments as to whether you would like to hear this instead of the good night music we've been playing for over eight years. So stay tuned and let's put the airplane on the ground right now. If I can find the throttle to retard, this is what it should sound like. Put the gear down. <laughs> Just don't forget the gear. Gear down. Three green. <laughs> Chuck? Great landing, Captain. Be sure to tune in next Monday, July 8th, when America's Favorite Way to Fly returns to the cyber waves with episode 421. We hear that an airline must cancel many of its flights because of the unavailability of pilot crew members. How can this happen? Tune in next week when we present a global pilot shortage. Who would be flying the commercial airliners? Our producer would like to introduce a new sign-off bumper music. He is asked for your comments by submitting to www dot host at EALradioshow.com. Okay, Captain Neil, let's hear what you have.